Welcome to the Growth Investing Secret Podcast. This is Calvin Sito. And this is Jonathan Ang. The reason why we started this podcast is to help each household to have at least one full-time investor by investing to high-growth companies called Superstocks. We didn't come from well-to-do backgrounds and after many years of investing, we finally became full-time investors before the age of 30. This was only possible with growth investing. Our mission is to help both beginner and experienced investors get better investment returns. Don't settle for less. It is very possible that you can achieve out-of-the-world results and we have proven that it is possible through the returns of our community. So now, let's be committed to learn, dive in and get started on today's episode. All content from participants shall not be treated as professional advice or recommendation to buy or sell any position in any financial-related instruments. The content is made available for educational purpose only. We may buy any securities mentioned and we may stand to benefit financially if they rise in value. You should seek independent financial and legal advice before making any financial decisions. Hey everyone, I'm your host Calvin today and typically I interview highly successful investors. But today we're going to spice things a little bit. Our guest is Geoffrey Green who is the Chief Financial Officer of the only publicly listed Graph Distiller. For full disclosure, I'm also a shareholder, and Inside Distilling has two businesses. One is called a craft canning and bottling, where you know, it, it is growing rapidly because of the ready-to-drink movements. And the second business is a spirits business where they own a couple of brands. So to start off, Geoffrey, you know, I think you are a person with a fascinating background. You are thoughtful and highly skilled in what you do. And you also mentioned that you were previously an investor, like most of our listeners right now. But now you're in the operating space as a, as a chief financial officer. So could you share with us about your journey in the investment industry and eventually what led you to join Insight Distilling? Sure. Well, thank you, Kelvin, for having me. I have to tell you, I really appreciate the Im- invitation and excited to have this conversation with you. You're right. You know, I'm actually one of you. you. I'm, I'm, I'm literally sitting here thinking about it. And it's fascinating that you know, I took the journey that you and a lot of your listeners took you know, over the last uh, number of years of my career. And I started and I really wanted to be on the buy side. My father actually was a senior uh, financial officer at Delta Airlines. And for years, I grew up around with him around the, the dinner table. And he would tell me stories of working with analysts. He would tell me about um, Delta raising money for all kinds of uh, growth opportunities. And I remember him talking about the Pan Am deal and uh, when they purchased uh, Western Airlines. And I was fascinated by it, but I always thought, you know what, the more exciting role was to be the investment banker or the analyst. And so early on, he sent me on this journey of thinking about that. And when I graduated from Wake Forest, I had an opportunity to go meet with some really outstanding people. I met with a guy by the name of Glenn Engel, who was at the time the senior banker slash analyst at uh, Goldman Sachs covering airlines through deregulation in the 80s. I met with other individuals that, uh, that you know, that were just very senior and, and involved in, uh, in Wall Street. And at that time, I just, it caught fire. I wanted to be an analyst. And so after Wake Forest, I um, went to apply for an analyst job and I interviewed at Solomon Brothers and Kidder Peabody and, and really got excited about it. But the best opportunity actually was with a local bank actually in Atlanta, called SunTrust, a uh, trust company, and uh, started my career there, but quickly decided that I needed to be in New York and moved to New York and eventually started working for Citibank and the Emerging Markets Group. But I always had a passion for investing and um, eventually joined a group that was one of the early CLO uh, managers, a group that was run by a gentleman by the name of Paul Travers, who was 
and, and Linda Pace. Linda Pace went, later went on to build Carlisle's LB uh, um, Leverage Finance Group for CLOs. And they that's where I learned about leverage lending. And, you know, spent a lot of time basically at the bank level financing early LBOs, Peter Peabody or KKNR, Clayton Dubillet and Rice. Some of the early LBOs were financed by a group of European banks and BHF, the bank that I worked for, was one of the key lenders in, in those structures. And so early on, Kelvin, I was, you know, indoctrinated in what to look for in a weak company that was improving and uh, how you can finance a company with a lot of leverage and how do you, you know, turn around a struggling company. And through that process, I eventually actually was recruited by a hedge fund on the West Coast called Symphony Asset Management. Symphony was one of the early, very large hedge funds. Um, this was back in the 1990s that threw, kind of flew under the radar screen. They were very quiet. Our group was a long, short, high yield group and a convertible arbitrage group. And the team there was led by a gentleman by the name of um, Gunther Stein and Deepak Gorajani, and they were the first group to really be shorting bonds, high yield bonds in a long short strategy. And this was Kelvin before uh, credit derivatives, right? So we were, that strategy was unique because you had to kind of be very discreet about selling something that you didn't own. Dealers did not like being shorted, having people short bonds to them. So I learned, you know, trading there and shortly after spending some time there, I went on my own, started my own hedge fund um, and managed a long, short strategy that was focused on distressed and did that successfully, moved our investment team to New York from San Francisco and managed that through the financial crisis and actually, you know, all the way up until this opportunity. It, the, the strategy changed at times. I mean, with the shape of the yield curve over the last decade, it's been hard to use volatility and high yield, but um, eventually found myself looking at the same companies I had through my career over the last 20 you know, plus years, two decades. But instead of looking at the same companies in bonds, I'm looking at the same companies that just have a more simplified capital structure with just equity and maybe a sliver of debt. And that led me, Kelvin, to a host of these micro cap, mid, small cap opportunities that when I looked at, Reminded me of Keebler when it was LBO. Reminded me of of some of the um, you know Ready Ice and some of the um, the the early roll up strategies uh, in high yield that had been hugely successful and really frankly put the um, did develop the kind of results at some of the uh, private equity groups that led to what we see today, which is making you know they're now a premier platform for investors across the world. So I I really um, started. And worked my way career-wise down the capital structure. Started at a senior bank lending level, then it was high yield, then it was more stressed and distressed, convertible, and then finally an equity. But at the end of the day, I can tell any investor, it doesn't matter where you are on the balance sheet, where you're investing. What really matters is your understanding of the income statement, the strategy, and uh, your ability to kind of look around the corner and predict the future there. And the piece that I think I put in at the end of, you know, later in my career is understanding what, how other investors will react to news that you might look at and react to as well and, and getting alignment on uh, what the best strategy is to take advantage of that. So that's kind of how it started. And I'll just finish this little, you know, long-winded answer by saying towards the end of my investing career, I got fascinated with Eastside and a number of other small companies. 
there's another company called Lovesack that I met uh, the CEO and got fascinated with. And I had this tinge of regret. You're towards the end of your career and you're thinking, you know what? I've looked in from outside at what feels like a thousand companies, you know, peered in the window and looked what's going on inside. And you, and like you and other investors, you all have, we all have great ideas on what a strategy should be and what I would do if I was the CEO and CFO. And in the case of Eastside, I kind of fallen in love with the, the team, the culture, the business concept, this industry itself. And uh, I remember leaving a meeting with the then CEO thinking to myself, you know, if I was 20 years old, this is where I'd want to work. I wouldn't be an investor. I would be on the operating side. Later, Eastside ran into some trouble and they asked me to join the board. And then later, as I helped with the board organization and guide the company through some, some transition at the board, I had an opportunity to help recruit the CEO, Paul Block. And then Paul, at some point, turned to me and said, hey, would you be interested in joining us as CFO? My first thought was, I have absolutely no interest in that. And then I paused for a minute, Kelvin, and I said, you know what? This sounds really interesting. And you know what? Secretly, I want to, 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 to take this journey, take this road. And so... I put the investing on the side, um, you know, and uh, stepped over into to the chief financial officer role. And I have to tell you, it has been a whirlwind since I stepped in this role a year ago. And um, but I don't regret it. And I'm really excited about the, the the opportunity ahead for the company as well as for me, frankly. Well, you know, it sounds like it's an incredible right? And it also sounds that uh, whatever you have picked up from your various jobs to starting your own company. It all feels like deja vu and now you're able to apply your accumulated knowledge to help Insight Distilling. And I think the fact that Insight is able to attract you because you saw the turnaround potential in Insight. So I also kind of noticed that, you know, looking through the earning transcript, I think Paul and you have mentioned that uh, there are a lot of new hires in the company, but not just ordinary hires, but people who are very capable, people who are working in big companies like Heineken but they actually left their stable jobs in huge companies to join Insight. So whenever I look at small companies, I do know in terms of the ability to attract high quality talents, small companies just do not have that luxury or the capability to attract you know, high quality talents. So I just want to find out from you, from the Insight, you know, what's so compelling about Insight and what's the opportunity for these individuals since they have actually left their stable jobs to actually work in Insight? Sure. So that's, you know, and that's another big question that I myself was asking. It's this, he says it's a small company. It's, uh, you know, it's really actually the size of what you would expect a small private company to look like that's uh, a venture company. And, uh, um, but I think one of the things that, that's interesting about it is it's a public company, right? It re it's really uh, unique in the sense that it's a public company with a public company uh, platform with its public equity. But the thing that was interesting when Paul and I started discussing how do we professionalize a company and build a platform to make this a $200 million, you know, a much bigger company with a lot of rapid growth? The one thing that came to mind is it's about people, as you said. How do you recruit and get, retain creative people, people that can manage, I'm not a $10 million company, but, you know, a billion dollar company. And that rang true with me, Kelvin, because I remember hiring a, a team for my, my hedge fund and, you know, later realized you really have to focus on talent and uh, get the right people in the, in, in the right roles. So when we started thinking about how are we going to do that, you know, I was concerned to your point, you know, your question, how are we going to get people interested in this? The way I found was, is that the world has changed for young people like 
yourselves and maybe some of your listeners. In the past, you know, let's call it two generations ago, you come out of school and you think to yourself, I want to work for IBM, I want to work for Microsoft. Later it was, I want to work for Facebook, right? And those people who jumped into those early roles before those companies were big, you know, saw incredible value creation in the equity that they got, right? So they would get some equity and they start to grow, um, profit sharing that would roll into equity. And over time, you know, as some of these companies really grew dramatically, they, uh, they made fortunes. But the truth of the matter is today for young people, if you're coming out today and you're looking at a job opportunity and you're looking at a public company like a Facebook and it's got a Ford multiple that just looks incredibly expensive. And I'm not here to, 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 to call evaluation on Facebook, but what, what, what I'm saying is, is that when you look at something and you, you know it's 200 times revenue or some incredible number, all right? And you're thinking to yourself, you know, um, the stock's really gonna you know, dramatically improve. I would have to argue that some of the value of the future is all of today. And so the people that are getting options and, and stock today, probably won't see the appreciation that they saw for the person that joined, you know, Microsoft in the 1980s or the person that joined, you know, Amazon, you know, 10 years ago. And so what I think we've seen is people who are very talented look at Eastside and said, you know what, much like they made the, the choice with me, which is, hey, I've, I've had a career, I've done something, I've got something, you know, that I can look back on, but this is a startup mentality. This is a company that's acting like a venture company, not an old public company that's turned around. And so for the people that are in, you know, I think the view is that we're going to see, um, you know, rapid growth and improvement. And there's an opportunity to see wealth creation with, uh, you know, with equity grants and other things like that. And also just development in their own career. So um, I was surprised, you know, we recently hired someone, as you mentioned, from Heineken. Um, we've uh, brought in a senior salesperson from um, JLOR, um, and he, they came from Gallo. We've um, been able to recruit um, um, a senior marketing officer who's been all over the spirits, you know, industry, and has had a number of other people interested in, in her as well. And so I'm, I'm really excited about the team that's come together and their enthusiasm uh, for the opportunity. But uh, that bigger question of you know, what are the companies are going to be able to better recruit in the future, I think is a, is, a, is a fascinating topic for us to think about. And I think, you know, large companies are going to struggle to keep good talent over time because they're not as flexible. They're really expensive if you're thinking about owning them as an employee. And, uh, um, you know, there's a lot of exciting new opportunities in small companies today. That's actually a very original thinking, you know, like the way how you are thinking about how a company is able to attract people, right? Today, it's just not about the names, but it's also the ability to generate wealth through the equity of the company. And I think, you know, the kind of people that you speak about just now, it's just like you have a team that belongs to a mid to large cap company. So I think that's highly unusual, but I think it also goes to show there might be something that's really compelling that is going to create for the next few years. I want to move on a little bit on the topic about the company's culture. So, um, you know, culture, I think is not often spoken about, but to me, I think culture is the quality of the decisions being made, how people behave, how are they incentivized to grow the business. So could you talk to us a little bit about the culture that you're hoping to build in Insight or maybe what is the current culture of Insight is doing? Sure. So Kelvin, this is an area where I have to tell you, I have 
done more learning than than passing knowledge. I mean, as we said, you know, I came up through as an operator, an investment manager, and in this, the cultures you, we're talking about coming off a trading desk. You know, it's about speed, it's about creativity, it's about um, a very quick decision timeline. There's not a lot of collective you know, wisdom generation where you get a group of people together and you work on problems over a, a period of time and you come up with elaborate solutions. It's completely different, right? When you're sitting on a trading desk and you see something move and you've done a lot of research and you have to make a trade or put a complicated position on, you know, you're doing it with creativity, speed, and, you know, an instinct. In this environment, what I've learned, and this is one of the teachings of Paul Block is, that's completely outside of the way a, a company like this should work, even a small company. And one of the, the key things that you hear is, you know, we're going to stay focused and in the process. And what that means is when you build a co company culture, you're trying to build a culture where the process that you put in place to achieve some certain results is the, the Bible, so to speak. And, and inside that process, everybody's highly functioning. And so, you know, I might be good at one thing. I might, you know, have a team member that's good at something else. And it, you really have to meld all the team members together and make sure you're getting the best out of everybody. If one individual strikes out and tries to fix all the problems on their own, you might have some success here and there, but you're never going to have the success that you would have of a full team with everybody, you know, exceeding expectations in their best areas of, of expertise. That type of culture is one that a highly successful organization um, will have. And um, sometimes it's easier, I think, to build that in smaller organizations because you have, you know, less complexity and less resistance to change from, from a large organization. Think about it uh, like, like the, the big three and how long they've struggled to produce um, cars that really are hits. And then it, it took a, generous, a, a genius like Elon Musk to come in and say, you know what? You're thinking about cars completely the wrong way. Look at the interviews of some of the ex-GM executives talking about, about how that wasn't gonna work. And I think what, what, what that is, is an example of you know, a business idea that just you know, was, was really well thought through and thought through outside of the you know, context of what the, the, the paradigm is. Um, but I think behind that is a culture where you have everybody you know, contributing their best. Now, there's a big leader in an organization like Tesla, right? There's a big leader in other successful organizations. You mentioned Warren Buffett. that starts this DNA in the organization and says, you know what? This is what we're going to stand for. This is our mission. This is our vision. And once that's instilled in everybody, then um, the organization starts to uh, move autonomously without a lot of direction from the top. And that's what we're trying to do with Eastside. We just got back from working on a three-year um, strategic plan, which we're gonna be rolling out to the, to the community here shortly. And we're starting to see that DNA get populated in all the employees. And if there was one meeting in particular I was thinking about, where there was a team and five people were talking, you know, at, taking turns talking. But Kelvin, it was almost like you were hearing one person tell the same story. They were all talking the same thing, telling the same strategy, 
And I'm thinking this was a not a prearranged meeting in the sense that it was like we were, you know, put up there, you know, more or less put on the spot, and they were all articulating this common vision. Paul and I looked at each other, and you know, you could tell that that was one of the biggest breakthroughs uh, that we had seen in the last year is when the team starts to communicate in this monotone kind of single focused way of what the vision is. So um, that's the beginning component of, of a highly successful culture. And I'll tell you this, Kevin, I, as a new person on the operating side, my notebook is filling up fast. <laughs> so we might have to have a follow-up conversation and I can give you a lot more details on what makes the, the culture work. But that's the beginning nugget that I give you about what's changing you know, in the East Side. That's amazing. And as you are telling your story, I can tell you that I believe that most companies, maybe they can achieve to a certain level, but companies that can achieve extraordinary heights is where cross departments actually work together as a cohesive unit. And I think the fact that uh, you talk about how you are building a culture, for me, I've observed many companies, the way they build culture. I think one of the companies I respect a lot is Netflix as well. There's this book called No Rules, Rules by uh, Reed Hastings. So uh, I think I actually resonate a lot about, uh, about yeah. what you just said as well. So I just want to talk a little bit moving to the business uh, portion, right? So I understand we have uh, two components. One is a crafting canning business and second is a spirits uh, portfolio. So I want to talk a little bit about the spirits portfolio first. I think it consists of Azuna Tequila, Portland Potato Vodka, Burnside Whiskey. But at the same time, you know, as an investor who is actually listening to the current podcast right now, they've been wondering, you know, there are huge players like Baijiu, Anheuser-Busch, and many brands out there in the same industry as Inside New Zealand. And it's rather an intense um, industry, very competitive. How is Inside able to carve out a niche for yourself? And how are we doing anything different to build a decent market for ourselves? Great question, Calvin. Great question. You know, let's think about this for a minute in, in the context of, uh, of, Amer of America. And, and if your listeners are, are not familiar with the market here in, in, in the United States, let me just, you know, let's take an imaginary walk through a grocery store. So if you were with me today and we, you know, said, Kelvin, let's go on a little, uh, um, you know, field trip. We jumped in the car and we rode down to my local Carluzzi's, which is our grocery store, you know, and um, you pull in, you, you go into the grocery store and you start walking the aisle. What you would see is a large number of, you know, of, it's particularly in the beverage space. And I'm talking about in, in beer and specifically, you'll see, you know, freezer after freezer, cold case after cold case. And in those cold cases are um, at eye level are these, you know, four pack, six, 16 ounce um, uh, beers. And the price point on those beers is like $18. Now you have to think about that for a minute and they're all have exciting labels and uh, very colorful, all types of flavors and varieties of it. But if you have to think about it and we go back 20 years and you walk the same grocery store, it would have been uh, no cold cases. It would have been, you know, just shelves. And you would have seen Budweiser, you would have seen Coors, you would have seen the, the, the traditional names on the shelf, probably about three or four choices, right? Bud Light, Budweiser Regular, Miller Light, <laughs> Miller, and then you would just, you, and those are your options. In the beer space, it's been absolutely transformed. One of our businesses, Craft Canning, serves the small craft brewer. So those beers that are in the cold case, they're not Budweiser. 
Budweiser has been pushed off the shelf by tiny little companies that are making extraordinary, you know, craft beer. And so craft canning is the largest mobile canning operation in the Pacific Northwest. And we serve hundreds of small customers that are, you know, a, a little restaurant that is also uh, brewing their own beer, a small um, team of people that are starting to develop their beer. They've gone from kegs serving their beer, you know, in restaurants, and now they're in the, on the shelf and they call us in and we, you know, bring cans and uh, we'll can in their facility. And then, um, you know, and then they distribute their beer to these places. So that's one side of the business. That is a phenomenon that's happening in unique markets. And you can see it best in places like uh, New York. You can see it in uh, Vermont. It's happening in Massachusetts and the Eastern markets. It's happening in Colorado, Portland, Seattle, California, Northern California, um, you know, places where there's millennials and people that are really developing this beer, beer culture. It's also happening in spirits. So if we step over to our spirit side of the business, you're correct. We have Portland Potato Vodka and we have Burnside and their craft brands focused. They've historically been focused in the Pacific Northwest, but they're not uh, national brands yet. You can get Burnside in some markets outside of, uh, uh, of, of Pacific Northwest. We used to have another brand that we've since um, uh, uh, separated with. That was uh, a brand called Redneck Riviera, but that was more, that was not a really a craft brand. And we have a tequila brand that it is more of a national brand um, that's a craft brand. But when we talk about the crafts side of spirits, we're not quite there yet. We're not, what I mean by that is we're not quite at that same, you know, point that we've seen with, with beer. In fact, I was in the um, uh, uh, liquor store the other day with the team and we were reviewing, uh, you know, uh, the position of one of, of Portland Potato Vodka and we were, you know, thinking about it and how it competes with Tito's and, you know, the prosper prospects for it to break out and be a super regional brand, kind of the way Tito's exploded. And uh, I asked the liquor store manager, I said, you know, what, if, what do consumers think about craft spirits? And they said, they're not yet on fire the way we've seen in beer. It's coming, but it's slow. And one reason why it's slow is because of what you just said, Diageo, Pernod Ricard, um, Proxima, the super large guys have a really good control of distribution, but that's slowly changing. You mentioned Reed Hastings, and I remember Reed Hastings from, you know, when early, early on, I was, you know, on the banking side, and I remember lending to Blockbuster, and I remember looking at Reed Hastings' strategy, you know, when he came out and said, we're going to take Netflix and go from the mail order, you know, uh, CD, you know, DVD model to online. And I remember listening to Blockbuster talk about, you know what, we'll do that too, but our business is really booming and, and we don't have to really focus on, you know, going straight, going streaming. That was a disaster for them, Kelvin. It was an absolute disaster. And Reed Hastings was a visionary. I mean, he was one that says, I see the market going here and I'm going to be there first. And he figured out the business model. It wasn't easy at first. You know, like I said, you know, he was competing with, uh, with Blockbuster and you were having to get it sent to you in mail and you were getting a DVD and then you had to send it back. And then slowly they wanted to figure out a way I can get more bandwidth and stream it. And then, and then he realized I got a bigger problem. I don't have enough content, you know? And so I would apply the same analogy to um, craft and spirits. We're at that stage where there's a Blockbuster 
you know, and then there's this visionary of what crafts could look like for spirits. Now, there's some regulation that has to change. We have to be able to distribute directly to consumers. You know, we can't do that like the wine business can, like wineries can on the West Coast. We have a wine license, but we, you know, we can't, you know, ship spirits directly to consumers. You know, we can go through an intermediary, but, uh, you know, there's some changes that have to be made. But what my point here is, is that I think eventually you're going to see consumers really, um, decide that they want unique craft beers you know the farm to fl uh, to flask mentality of really building a product that is completely unique and unusual is something that large guys who are doing you know 100,000 cases just can't do you know or a million cases you might think Woodford is outstanding bourbon but at the scale that they're making it it's like a lot of other stuff when we're talking about a company like Eastside and we're doing 20,000 cases, right? Or something much smaller. We have the ability to do something unique. For example, our new Eastside product, one of the things we're, we're making is, a, um, is, a, is a, a whiskey that's aged in a sherry cast that comes from France that's been you know, soaking in sherry since maybe the Napoleonic period. Who knows you know, how long that thing has been soaking in sherry. Old, old barrel. Whiskey's in it now. Now, you can produce... A limited amount of that. It would never be a product that you would see one of the majors do. There will be a group of, you know, whiskey aficionados who see this as extraordinary that they got to have. It'll be, you know, it's kind of like, you know, I got to have the Aston Martin or I have to have this specific unique, you know, um, you know, item, the Rolex or whatever. Then there's only five of them. You know, Eastside has changed its business model where we're going to produce outstanding products that people really want and that are rare and hard to get. That's our tagline. It's rare and hard to get. And that is exactly what fueled the craft phenomenon in, in beer. Outstanding products, they're hard to get. I'll give you one, exa one more example and I'll just end it on this. Is that there's a brewery in Vermont called the Hetty Topper, and they make a, an IPA that is legendary. Unfortunately, Kelvin, you have to be in Vermont to get it because <laughs> they won't ship it anywhere. And so there's this concept, you know, where people all of a sudden say, you know, realizes that craft spirits, craft beverage is worth to go the, the, the adventure and they go seeking it. And uh, so Eastside's goal here is to make that happen in spirits. And we're doing it in the Pacific Northwest now. And our goal is to do it in other key markets too in the future. So Diageo, if you're listening to this, you better watch out because you could become like Blockbuster and and on the, you know, in the, in the memory bank, as opposed to, you know, you know, in, in um, you know, places around the, the neighborhood, you'll, they'll be shuttered. So we'll see if, if that comes to fruition, but uh, that's the vision of the company. Jeffrey, I just want to say that I think owing to your experience in the investment sector, you know, you are able to apply different mental models. I like the one you talk about Netflix, uh, Blockbuster, you know, that was actually a very good case study. Uh, mm -hmm. I think a lot of business school, they use that as MBA as well. I think MBA classes, uh, iPhone, Nokia, uh, similar stories of how when people are not keeping track of innovation, seeing where the market's coming. So I really uh, appreciate the thought that you should be put to explaining the answers. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of times, qualitative stuff that have already been changed in the company, will eventually be reflected in the financials, right? So it's like the cost and effect, right? You have a good product, 
you create the margins there, right. it's going to be reflected in the financial. So I think that's actually a great way for me to lead into my next question. I think currently, if you look at inside this link, by any financial matrix, if you like to screen it, I don't think it would pass. But I do think that the financials are changing. So what I'm saying is that the financials of the business right now is not very apparent because there's a lot of fixing that goes into the business and eventually the profit and loss statement would show some changes. So I think Paul Block, who is the CEO, talk about how the margins are not optimized at the moment. So uh, why is that? And you know, how should investors look at the PL and what are some of the changes that will actually happen over time? So, you know, as a as an investor myself and you know, someone that, that looks at financial statements, you know, when I took the CFA and dove, you know, dove into that many years ago, one of the things that I realized, it, you know, as you carefully look at financials, is that not all financial statements are the same, right? You can look at financial statements, the income statement, you know, that leads to, it's a period of time, a section of time, leads to a point in time, which is the balance sheet and, um, and see how it's connected. And you can, you know, reconcile gap to cash flow. But, but, but what's really important is to, in your mind, and some people do it with a model, break down that income statement into smaller and smaller components. And I've always thought the biggest challenge of an analyst where you can really identify a good analyst and balance, don't look at their EPS estimates. Don't look at their, you know, how good they are versus someone else on revenue projections. The place to find and measure people for being a superstar analyst is how well they understand gross margin development and the leverage of SGNA. And I can, if I could just take a moment to speak to those two. Gross margin development. When you sell something, you sell with volume and at a price. So price and volume, right? There's one other component of that you have to think about, which is mix. Price, volume, mix. Price, volume, mix are the three components in a larger company that have multiple SKUs. So you might sell something that has, you know, a dollar of margin and you sell a lot of it. And then you might have something that sells, you know, you know, only so every so often, but it has you know, a lot more profitability. And that mix of which is which one you're selling can really change gross margins. The other thing that can happen is inside gross margins, there's fixed costs. And as margin dollars shrink, the fixed costs look bigger and make the gross margins really look different. I'll give you an example from, from my days. When I was in, in high yield, one of the ways we look to short companies is I look for something called enterprise leverage. And what enterprise leverage is, is to really dig into understanding the business model and thinking through how much fixed costs are in gross margins. And then if you found a company that had super high fixed costs in gross margins, and we had declining sales, either declining volumes or declining prices, the water's coming down, right? And then all of a sudden you're going to see a little tip of a rock, which is the fixed cost in gross margins. As a high yield investor, you look for that and you sold those bonds because what would happen is as the water level comes down, as revenues come down and exposes more than fixed costs, the margins deteriorate very rapidly. And then all of a sudden you have a company where you, you looked at it and you think, oh my gosh, this, is, uh, this thing is, it, it has got no margins. And very quickly, bond investors who don't do that much work on the income statement start to panic and then they start selling it. And once they start selling, 
then there's not buyers until the, 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 the bond price is set at much lower levels. So when I think about gross margins as an analyst, I'm looking for the reverse for a growth company, right? So this is where Eastside is. You know, you, you asked a question about the, the financial statements. We're replacing slow growth that was unprofitable with new growth that's is much more profitable. So as you transition there from selling Redneck Riviera whiskey, excuse me, which is, uh, you know, we were you know, selling with no margin or we were selling Blanco tequila with very little to no margin. And instead we're selling these high-end whiskeys have a lot of margin, right? We're selling less of them so far, but we're selling, we're selling more Portland potato vodka. We're expanding the margins there by taking some price and reposition as a higher value vodka that's even better than Tito's. And, uh, and it's one of the premium potato vodkas with Mount Hood water you can, you can buy. And there's something about Mount, Mount Hood water that's just you know incredible in a, in a vodka. And when you, when you get those, those margins up, the east side fixed cost component starts to disappear as the do, as the dollars gross margin dollars are, are are grown and added to the to the to the to the um, to the income statement. The margins expand rapidly. So what Paul Block is re referring to is what I just described: is this gross margin mix shift as we move from very low margin product to higher margin products. Now, while sales might not look like it's growing dramatically, it's because we're replacing bad sales with good sales, right? And then the other piece is you have the same dynamic happening with SGNA. So SGNA is like gross margin in the sense that it's, it's got a component that's fixed, right? A large amount of it's fixed. And we are running a company with an SGNA level that's for a public company with much higher gross margin dollars. So that's the problem the company has had with prior management is they were trying to add gross margin dollars that were there were too, too, too much revenue for too little margin. They needed a lot more revenue. A lot more revenue would have covered some more of the fixed costs in SGNA. But you know what? It was taxing the organization to try to generate that kind of revenue. It was unprofitable revenue. So we completely shifted the company around now, where we're now focused on generating highly profitable spirits brands, spirits um, um, products to throw off a lot of margin and just a little bit of growth creates a lot of gross profit that covers the, the SGNA. So as you see that happen, we're gonna hopefully see the reverse of what I was looking for when I was shorting bonds, you know, a more rapidly expanding gross profit. And that's where analysts get that wrong. They think it's linear. They think it's, oh, we're gonna go from one to two, two to three, three to four. We're looking for growth that will drive us in a convex chart so it's, an accelerating margin uh, that's accretive going forward. Now we've got to execute, you know, and turning a company around like that has taken more quarters than a lot of people have patience for. But the important thing is the incremental steps that have to be taken. And as you started with, Delvin, at the very beginning, yeah, it actually starts with people. Starts with people. Replacing people, plugging in a new team, isn't done in a quarter or two quarters. And so we've been working on this for you know a good three quarters now, four quarters. And so I think. Got the key building blocks in place. That's team. We've started. We've isolated the, the the products that are going to be invested in, and we're off into the races. Now we have one other great, you know, feather in our cap, and that is this craft business, because it's already turned the corner in that sense and generating more and more profitability. And the three-year strategic plan that we're going to be talking about in the next couple of weeks has this business 
dramatically growing. And um, it's hard to model that even for me. And I'm inside the company. So um, we're going to have to to really see how that develops and how the execution on that on that business strategy works for craft canning. But I'm very excited about that side of the business and the spirits as well. They're at two different, you know, segments. The tempos of the business are different, but we'll we expect both of them to see this, you know, dramatic margin improvement, both from revenue changing, mix changing, and the gross profit dollars increasing. Well, I think you gave us a good revision of what I've learned in school. It's, it's called a manager accounting and financial planning. Um, I yeah. appreciate how you took time to explain that to our listeners. And I think to your point about how, you know, people tend to look at the overall P&L, the big picture, and they get confused. And I think one of the key components that I've learned as an analyst back in the younger days is really understanding the key term of uh, unit economics, right? How things relate to each other on a smaller scale. And once you get those formulas right, and the P&L is tend to be a scale-up version of all the unit economics added up together. So I, yes. I thought, I thought uh, what you said was uh, really, really good. And it's actually a very meticulous approach to seeing how the numbers could change over time. So I right. also like to move on as well. Um, I think while you mentioned about fixing the part of the business, talking about the gross profit marginal contribution, I also like to talk about one of the recent conferences that you guys attended. I think uh, you have actually done a presentation to talk about how the industry is growing around 30%. But right now, you know, if you look at the PL of its side, it is not showing any growth on the surface. So when investors look at the top line, what are they missing right now? Is there a growth story that's unfolding? but has not yet translated to the numbers yet. So the pandemic really makes looking at financial statements difficult. So in the, on our spirits business, let's think about that. So that's you know, approximately half the business. And if you think about it, you know, one of our big SKUs, one of the big the products that we were selling is this uh, tequila business. We have a tequila business where we have this really, uh, it's a super premium tequila. In other words, it's seven-year agave that's harvested and created into Blanco. A lot of tequilas today actually aren't made from seven-year agave. They're made from a lot younger agave. And the reason that is, is because in Mexico, agave prices have gone up dramatically. And so there's a shortage of agave for um, um, tequila production. So sometimes people pull forward the, the, uh, the production of tequila. And when they you harvest agave early, it doesn't have the same sugar content. So you have to add sugar. So that's why when you drink tequila, it's poor quality. It's got a lot of extra things added to it. And, you know, you don't feel so good later afterwards. Really premium tequila that's, you know, made from blue agave that's seven years and older, harvested, you know, made the traditional way the tequila is made is completely different. So we have um, the business there was to build that tequila business on premise. This is the former strategy. Then it means, in other words, sell tequila in restaurants on-premise and um, get people just to taste it. Once you taste the Azunia tequila, it is phenomenal. You're, you're stuck. I remember the first time I had black. This is the super premium. It's very expensive. It competes with 1950, 1942 Don Julio. And it looks more like Kelvin, like a bourbon. And when you drink this tequila, it's a sipping tequila. And it is incredibly smooth and different. And our thought was when you taste it, it was like, oh my gosh, we've got people got to try this. But the problem with the old business model was you can't bring $120 tequila into a restaurant. The, the drinks are going to cost you like, you know, $50 each, right? So the business case 
of the strategy that the, the former management team had wasn't going to work. So when we hit um, the pandemic, you know, all the on-premise shops, you know, or the store restaurants that were selling our tequila had to close down, particularly once in California. And so Azunia's volume dropped dramatically through the, through the pandemic. Now we saw Portland potato vodka go the other way because it was an off-premise brand. A lot of people would go in and say, do I want Tito's or Portland potato vodka? And they said, we'd much rather have Portland potato vodka and they would take Portland potato vodka. And so we, we that helped us. And, um, and then Craft Canyon also got the benefit of the off-premise opportunity. So when you look at our numbers now, one of the problems is, is Azunia, you know, is, is, is coming out of the pandemic, but we made the choice, Kelvin, when we looked at this. We could go back and sell all the Blanco back to the restaurants in California, but we went to them instead and you said, you know, we'll sell it to you at a higher margin. This is the margin story. But our focus with Azunia is not to sell Blanco at $28. It's to sell the Black at $128, right? A lot more margin there. It's a product that is extraordinary. So our focus is there on moving the portfolio mix up. Now, initially, you've got to get the Black you know, into distribution. You have to have people that taste it and understand it. And then, and then you start to have repeat customers and the gross margin dollars grow. So right now, that's what people have to understand about Eastside is that we're shifting the mix in our tequila business, even though we're reopening now and we're having the benefit of that. We're purposefully saying this is rare and hard to get and you have to pay, you know, the appropriate price for it, you know, and, and we'd love to, to have it in restaurants, but it's not going to be a well drink. In other words, the cheapest tequila in the, in the bar, you're going to have to, to pay a premium for it. So that transition is, you know, takes a couple of quarters. I think you'll start to see growth with, uh, with that product. You'll start to see growth again with Burnside, which continues. And we're lapping this huge move up in Portland potato vodka. And I'll just, you know, share that we're having to, to double order our, our vodka to keep, you know, keep it in stock and keep it going. Cause we've had some out of stock issues because of the, the, the demand there, but, but you're lapping a huge growth year last year. The growth in the company is coming and it's being led actually by Kraft up until you know this year. Um, one of the, the constraints the company has, as we've said before, is there's so many opportunities to invest. There's just so many places where you can you know, make an exceptional return, but we're limited. We're limited in the, in, in the, in the resources that we have. And uh, so um, we're having to pick and choose, but you know, I think, the, from what we've seen in the three-year plan, this is a company that can grow very rapidly with modest amounts of capital going forward. I, I think investors might have this question in their head. Like you talk about Azuna Tequila having to maybe the maybe for certain whiskey as well. You know, you have to keep it in kegs or in barrels for a couple of years. Does it right. mean that when it comes to selling our products, eventually we may run out of our supplies and how should investors think about the supplies, you know, like whenever investors want it or let's say for certain brands that are more on mass scale, uh, would we yeah. run to uh, supply issues? So, so that, and that's a question I can't resist. Someone throw this out there. One of the things that I found that was really a, a key um, success driver for an investor is to do a strategy called a read-through. A read-through is... You let's say hypothetically you're investing in auto companies, right? The read-through investor who saw the chip shortage developing and thought through the supply chain and said, wait a second, how's this going to affect so-and-so, right? And follow that read-through and say, wait a second, that's this is going to affect 
you know, this industry and that industry, and how's it going to affect the downstream suppliers? And so thinking through it this way, we have gone through a very interesting time during the pandemic in, in North America. We saw people go into grocery stores, into liquor stores, and just, you know, buy high-end products. So, um, for example, the AC Nielsen data on tequila, uh, bourbon, whiskey, is all showing that super premium has gone through the roof, right? People just like, uh, if I want to be stuck at home, if I want to be there for a year, I'm going to spend time doing, you know, something that I'm going to enjoy it, right? Instead of spending, you know, $150 here in the United States on a really, you know, nice dinner, you know, I'm going to spend, you know, $75 on a really nice bourbon or something like that. So what's happened with that, Kelvin, is, is that you can't make, to your point, you can't make, you know, two-year aged tequila that's been, it's, it's effectively like, you know, 10 years, you know, you seven-year agave, make it the Blanco, you can get it into Blanco, then Blanco's aged for another two years in a, in a bourbon barrel, and, uh, and it becomes this uh, super premium tequila. You can't make that. So we've also seen that with whiskey, 14-year whiskey, a bur bourbon, eight-year bourbon. We get inbound calls a lot with people saying, we know you own all this old bourbon. We want to buy it, right? And what we've found out in the last you know, quarter or so is there's a huge sh developing shortage in premium aged spirits. We know that to be the case because um, one of our competitors, it's a super high end competitor, has been out of stock in tequila. We know that it's the case because of people scrambling to try to buy aged bourbon. So the read through opportunity is there's a company called MGPI. And MGPI is a, um, is, is a spirits manufacturer. They actually bought um, uh, an old plant in Indiana and um, they make brown spirits and age it themselves. They have, I think, close to $100 million of, of brown spirits on the, on the balance sheet. And they've been aging up to, they got it up to five years. But past five years, there's a, a shortage, you know, a limited a quantity. And so, we are in a really good position as a company because our bourbon, uh, we have almost you know over 3,000 barrels of aged product, and we're not going to be using that anytime in the near future based on our volume. So we can really grow into our existing uh, um, um, bourbon. And that's also a source of free cash flow. People don't understand that. People look at our EBITDA and say, well, it's negative. What they don't do is carry cash flow one more step, which is incorporating working capital. When you sell whiskey out of working capital and you have more than you will ever need because we bought for what we thought was going to be, you know, huge growth. And um, instead of keeping cash reserves, we bought whiskey and you, and you start to deplete very slowly deplete all that is free cash flow. You're not rebuying the, the inventory of the raw barrels. So, um, so we, we're in a position where we think that we're, we have a lot of availability. Tequila is unique. We're, that's one area we have to focus on. We don't do aged vodka, so that's that's supply chains, you know, is what it is. But in the bourbon side, um, we're really in a good position there. And um, given what we what I think is personally going to happen with aged spirits, the supreme segment is going to get more expensive because you just can't create another fourteen year bourbon after it's all been drunk. So, and I'm seeing it, you know, uh, in the secondary market as people try to buy, you know, barrels, uh, whole barrels for wholesale because their plan is short on supply. 
tequila, again, I think we're, we, we're in a good position with our supplier down there and have plenty to work with. And we've actually been working with them to bring bourbon barrels down to Mexico to make even more unique tequila because our, our barrels that we're using for our bourbons are um, that are aged in, in, in Oregon oak is a unique oak um, a species of, of tree that imparts a, a very unusual flavor uh, on bourbon and in an old bourbon barrel that's, a, that's an Oregon oaked barrel we're going to have uh, even more unique opportunities to, to, to put that flavor on and express it through tequila. So um, we're feeling good about the supply and the direction of the market there. I think that's nice to know, right? Like I think most companies, when they look at it, they may have a rolling few months worth of inventory, but you guys actually have more than that. I think uh, to your point about how we see super premium tequila, right? I also observe, I mean, in where I come from, Asia, somewhat become like a bragging rights, like a collection kind of item. And in fact, it does appreciate, right? So in some form, like we see wine, we see paintings. What if we talk about these drinks as investments as well, right? I, I think that could be a, a possibility for the future. So, you know, just coming to my last question, you know, Geoffrey, I think you have achieved a lot for yourself. I think through your contributions and, you know, I, I really, I feel very thankful, you know, that you're actually with Insight because the way you thought about things, I think it shows the depth of understanding. It shows very measured approach. It's not something that's rushed into it. I think it's very systematic. There's a playbook behind it. And uh, before we end this podcast, right, so what are some things that you want the listeners to know about the future of Inside Distilling or where would you like to see Inside Distilling become in about three to five years' time? Maybe I'll touch on our three-year plan a little bit. What we've been um, working on there is our goal is to see this uh, uh, spirits company and, and craft canning business grow dramatically. And there's no reason why this can't be a company that has $100 million of revenue uh, at some point in the future here. When? It's a good question. We've mapped out uh, a strategy for both businesses over the next three years with a look to five, and we see huge opportunity for, for the company there. And we've developed, you know, a roadmap and the way that it was built by our CEO. And I have to tell you, this is great, you know, very different is instead of thinking 2021 and then next year, 2022 and then 2023, instead our thinking was to Kelvin just actually go out three years and stand as we call it in the result, stand in the future three years from today and ask ourselves, what do we want to see? And that number of revenue, that number of profitability for both businesses is what we want to see. And then work backwards. Instead of working forwards, work backwards. So if that's where we're going to be in 2024, what are we going to be in 2023? How do we get to 2022? Working backwards. And we built a plan that takes us you know, out a number of years here with the company dramatically developing. So qualitatively, what that will look like is we're going to be a spirits brand focused, you know, in key regional markets that's going to benefit from, from this craft phenomenon. We're going to get scale in these markets. We're going to dominate these markets. Dominate's important because you asked earlier about how do we compete with Diageo. You know what? We compete really effectively with Diageo in Portland because we are everywhere there. You know, people know us, we're very, you know, effective, we, you know, uh, marketing wise. 
we're going to pick select markets and dominate those super um, craft markets. That's different than the strategy we had had before. Before it was we're going to have a national footprint. We're going to go a thousand miles wide, but one inch deep. And the, the spirits team that we have today that's done this for years has said, that's not going to work. It's got to be effective with the use of capital. We're going to be, you know, very super focused, but really, really dominate the markets and spirits. And in canning, we're going to do the same thing. Craft canning, we're going to ride this wave of opportunity and focus on our key markets, but we're going to be doing it vertically. So we're going to attack more of the value chain in canning up and down, right? And not be just doing, you know, hey, we're going to go to can, can at this local brewery. We're going to be doing it, you know, focusing kombucha, uh, waters. We're going to do it in um, ciders. Ciders are huge. We have partnerships that we're developing already with some key, um, very fast growing. I don't know, if, um, you know, and I should say this at some point, but there are very significant names in consumer products that actually started canning with craft canning. And uh, we think that there's an opportunity for us to re replicate that and grow dramatically. So we're going to see that in canning and, um, and it's going to be more scale and more focused. The income statement is going to completely transform. And I don't think you're going to recognize the company um, within 18 months. Um, based on what we looked at in the port, it's going to be a completely different company. The management team is completely different and the company will be um, very different. But if I were to sum it up uh, of what you, the listeners should think about with Eastside is this is a venture company. This is a small, brand new, fast growing venture company that happens to be public. And unfortunately, if you want to get into a venture company, you know, they're usually private and you have to spend a fortune to go through a VC to get into a young, private, fast-growing company. There are a few that sometimes find themselves in the public market before you know, uh, maybe they should be instead of going through the venture route. And so I like to see us as a venture, fast-growing venture company that's going to um, reward investors if we can execute on this three-year plan that we've developed recently. So I'm excited about it. And uh, I'm really looking forward to building more relationships with investors. So I encourage people to to reach out if they want to learn more about Eastside and certainly for our products because we have some amazing products. Hearing from you, you know, it must be a very exciting time in Eastside. And I think throughout the podcast, Geoffrey, you have took incredible effort to really explain the business of Eastside Distilling. You know, and I think I feel incredibly honored to, you know, interview you. And uh, once again, you know, Geoffrey, thank you so much for your time. Um, I think it is uh, going to be a great podcast. Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate the time today. Thank you for listening to the Growth Investing Secrets Podcast. If you like this podcast, do leave us a review and share this podcast with your friends on social media. Don't forget to tag me as well at Kavesor on Instagram. As always, say no to lousy companies and only buy into the best growth companies in the world. And I'll see you in the next episode.